This is I'm Really Rich Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. On this show, we're diving into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters. We'll focus on the 45th president's impact on the economy, business, and wealth here in America and around the world. Over the past few weeks, as we've seen news come out of the White House, uh, there's one name that's been coming up over and over again, other than Trump, other than Bannon, and it's been that of Kushner, Jared Kushner. So here to talk to us about Jared Kushner and his brother, Josh Kushner, is Steve Bertoni. He's a senior editor at Forbes, and you've probably heard him on his own podcast, The Interview. Maggie, thanks for having me. This is great to jump to your show. I know. It's fun. Crossover. So you spoke with both brothers at different times over the past six months, and they have a, an interesting role to play in um, our current political scene. They do. Just you know, just two guys from New Jersey trying to you know, make it in this world, like, uh, like myself. So. <laughs> But no, very interesting. I mean, this is these are two super ambitious, successful, smart brothers. Jared, who ran um, the Kushner Company's billion-dollar billion real estate company, he's married to Ivanka Trump, slowly got involved in his father-in-law Donald's um, presidential campaign, eventually took over a lot of things, including speech writing, and then he really built the data system um, that you know took over the campaign and actually helped Trump win. Uh, he treated it like a startup, didn't know what he was doing, tried and failed a lot of stuff. If it worked, they'd scale. If it didn't work, they'd you know, kind of cut it away and keep on going. So he's now a senior advisor um, to his father-in-law, which is very controversial. Um, some people say he deserves it. The other side says it's nepotism, especially with someone who never um, has been in government before and ran a real estate business. But um, you know, he's a very impressive guy. He brings in some free market some business thinking to the uh the, the campaign um, to the white house and you know he's in the news every day for a number of reasons yeah i think recently he was tasked with that uh, reforming government and he said he wants to run government more like a business or like silicon valley yeah trump is kind of putting everything on jared he's supposed to you know start this new swat team to run it like silicon valley he's also supposed to i think uh on the side uh solve the middle east uh, peace process you know on his lunch break i guess and then his brother Josh, who is the younger brother, who um, runs an extremely successful venture firm called Thrive Capital. They've raised nearly $1.5 billion. They've gotten into incredible deals um, at a young age. Uh, he was amongst uh, Sequoia and Greylock into Instagram when he was just a 26-year-old kid. Um, he is in Stripe. He's in Spotify. He's in Slack. And then he actually incubates companies. He started um, Obamacare startup Oscar. Um, health, which is obviously a unicorn and has been maybe in the crosshairs of uh, the Trump administration. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, Josh has always kind of written as a footnote, like, oh, his younger brother who's an investor or who runs a VC company, he really um, has built from scratch um, a really um, incredible venture firm, probably the, one of the most influential, if not the most influential in New York City, for sure. Well, the Kushner brothers, to me, embody a larger debate that we're seeing between D.C. and Silicon Valley. We've talked about it before on this show, but Silicon Valley has put up some resistance to the Trump administration. Yes, for sure. And here we have Jared. No, I'm sorry, Josh, with Oscar that is, as you said, in the crosshairs. If Obamacare is dismantled and ended for good, what happens to Oscar? Well, that's that could be a whole other podcast right there. <laughs> Oscar will be okay. Um, Oscar launched because um, Josh thought there was a huge inefficiency in, in healthcare. I thought it was really confusing, really nasty to the consumer. So he wanted to find a way in. It's really hard to get into health insurance, 
but Obamacare and especially the exchanges they it was going to launch gave him a shot to get involved. Um, as we know, Obamacare and the exchanges have been tricky for a lot of people, um, Oscar included, but also you know Aetna, United Health have pulled out of markets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the plan was to launch. An, the plan is and was, or what <laughs> the plan was and is, to launch on Obamacare and then use that to expand to small business and then eventually offer large group insurance. Um, and they have enough money to do that. Although, if the exchanges go away completely, that could be a big, giant headwind for Oscar. For Josh Kushner, this entire situation is just very complicated. He is extremely close to his brother, um, as close as you know I've ever seen brothers. They call each other their best friends. Family is really important. Um, he's also very close to Ivanka and his uh, nieces and nephews. I mean, I think um, you know he calls Ivanka his sister, not sister-in-law. Um, at the same time, uh, Josh is very liberal in terms of um, rights, in terms of technology, in terms of he's an internationalist, not a kind of America first person. I think Jared's liberal too. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a whole other topic. Um, but it's tough because Josh is caught between family and um, Silicon Valley and his investors. So his employees probably do not like Trump. His um, founders, his CEOs that he invests in are probably against many things in the Trump administration. So Josh has to juggle that. He has to um, you know, be loyal to his family, but then also be loyal to his business. Uh, Josh keeps an open mind about things. Um, he's independent, he tells me. So um, while he leans you know, more progressive, he is not like a uh, like flag-waving Democrat. You know, he understands there's two sides to things. He takes a kind of a wait-and-see approach. But it's a, it's a very awkward dance and a very tough balancing act. And the problem is now is everything that he does is going to be colored with a Trump filter. Mm-hmm. So he has to realize that he has to avoid conflict of interest, but more especially, he has to avoid the perception of conflict of interest. So it kind of ties his hands. In some ways, he kind of has the downside of, of fame, so to speak, mm-hmm. without any of the upside. So the Trump administration is handcuffed what he can do, opposed to giving him a uh, any kind of business advantage. I think they have to be extra careful to make sure that there are no lines are crossed um, or that the public doesn't perceive that lines are crossed. Well, in your new cover story on Josh, you write about how after the election, the results were surprising to a lot of people, but especially in Silicon Valley. And Josh, um, you have the CEO of Slack, Stuart Butterfield, saying, um, you know, just consider, he recalls Josh saying to him, just think of me as the same person as before, the guy who invested in your company. So he kind of had to go around and reassuring all of his CEOs that things were, he's still the same. And there's no tie to the administration one way or the other. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think as everyone listening knows, those first couple of days and few weeks was just so confusing and emotional for everyone in America, no matter what side. And he really went to work to communicate to his um, employees and to his portfolio companies that I am not the Trump administration. I have no ties to it. Um, if you expect any kind of government favor from me, don't expect it. Um, and I'm just the same you know, person as before. I'm not involved. This is, um, involves my brother and my sister-in-law, but not me. So speaking of his brother, you also you sat down with Jared back in November, and you talked to some billionaires and got their opinions about Jared as well. And Rupert Murdoch, the News Corps billionaire, said, For the next four or eight years, Jared will be a strong voice, maybe even the strongest after the vice president. Yes. <laughs> Jared quite had, a statement. Quite a statement. And it kind of shows that you know Jared and Josh just have their very 
serious. They're very polite. They're very well respected. Um, and Jared in the campaign started slowly. He helped out where he could. He was a conduit for Trump. A lot of billionaire business and billionaire and business leaders, they might have you know publicly said they denounced Trump, but they also wanted to reach out to him. And they always trusted Jared as kind of someone that could connect them that wouldn't leak it to the press, that wouldn't kind of like um, – you could do it in, in – um, not secrecy, but just do it in taste. And slow, he went from a bridge to slowly helping Trump with some policy matters, uh, helping Trump with some speech writing, and that evolved. And next thing you know, he was running the whole speech writing campaign. And like we said, he was basically running the money. He was – I think it, it might have been Peter Thiel who said that if Trump – Trump's in charge for sure. Trump is the CEO. But that being said – it is Jared Kushner, at least during the campaign, that um, was acting as a COO and kind of making everything run, um, watching the budget, taking care of travel, and then building that incredible data operation. And now in the past few weeks, we've seen Jared's influence kind of expand to the point of even stories that it's Jared versus some of Trump's senior advisors in the White House, like Steve Bannon. And there's rumors of fights between the two. So based on what you know of Jared and his role in the campaign, broadly speaking, how do you, how should we view his role in, in the White House? You said he's been tasked with a lot. Uh, how influential is he really? No, I don't know. And it's, it's so much interesting. Like, I don't know how it, it actually works on the ground. And of course, the Bannon-Kushner fight is great for the press. I mean, it's great intrigue. Uh, I'm not saying it's not happening, but I mean, it's irresistible to write about. You have Bannon, who's kind of grew up blue collar he's very you know he's mr breitbart news mr america first you know some people have called him anti-semite um and then you have you know jared kushner who you know grew up you know in a privileged society grew up basically in you know grew up in new jersey but he's a a new yorker and it's a very different viewpoint so putting those two against each other is just in- incredibly uh interesting storytelling and I, I'm not saying it's not happening, but I'm saying that adds to this intrigue that's already such a crazy White House. Um, I'm not sure how much influence he has. I mean, the fact that you know he's tasked of the he Trump put him in charge of this whole new unit in the government. Will it work or not? Who knows? I mean, it's really hard to have a, a SWAT team kind of take over a government that's supposed to be slow and supposed to be um, checks and balances. And then you know we saw he was in Iraq a few days ago with ISIS. I mean, talking to people about the ISIS situation, which is a big part of Trump's policy. Then he trusts him with a lot of things. So the White House is leaking like crazy. There's definitely two sides, but it's very interesting to walk. I think the best way to do this is you follow where Bannon and Kushner are going. And I think depending on what their tasks are and their missions, that's going to show who has the upper hand, I guess. Interesting. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm no uh, West Wing watcher. That's uh, our friends down in Washington. I'm here in Jersey City with you. Um, What's interesting to me about the Kushners and the Trumps, you have Donald Trump used to be a Democrat, or he used to, he's been on the record. If you go on Wikipedia, he has been a member of every party, including a couple of New York City fringe parties. Exactly. And then you have the Kushners who have skewed a little more progressive or moderate so what do you think it says about Trump's thinking that he's bringing them in alongside people like Bannon? I mean, Trump is Trump. I mean, in the sense of he's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's his own kind of weird you know, creature. And obviously, I think a lot of people, he ran the Republican ticket, so he needs to have a lot of Republicans on his, uh, on his cabinet. But also, the people he has, the billionaires, tend to be you know, Republican or even probably more libertarian, I guess. But I mean, I think it just shows that 
I mean, with Trump, I think it all comes down to loyalty. And, you know, Jared is, besides being um, uh, mar- married to his uh, dear daughter, Ivanka, but was in it from the start, uh, really helped and helped him win the campaign and has been a really trusted advisor. Um, and Bannon came in later. But again, I think Bannon has that trust and loyalty, too. Um, it sounds like, you know, the infighting, one of them is probably going to lose. Well, Trump is very family first, we've seen. So yeah. if anything that could indicate but we have no way of knowing yeah but trump likes i mean trump likes jared he likes jared's story i think trump sees a lot of himself in jared they're both kind of outer borough or uh, you know you know trump's from queens and uh jared is from new jersey their early family fortunes came from kind of uh you know you know it, they made it money but their fathers made money on kind of more blue collar less less glamorous real estate and both Jared and uh, Donald brought their family fortunes to play in the big sandbox in Manhattan and um, buy these trophy properties. And kind of, I think Jared said, you know, if you're going to be in real estate, you have to do it in Manhattan. That's kind of like the, the major league baseball of that. And I think he, he likes the fact that he's a city guy. He likes the fact that he's a real estate guy. And it just sees himself 30 years in the rearview mirror with Jared. From older Kushner back to younger Kushner. So what does the younger Kushner, what does Josh tell us about Success in Silicon Valley, success under Trump's America. Well, I don't know about under Trump's America, but <laughs> you know, Josh is really interesting. I mean, Josh could have easily you know, just taken a, a comfortable seat in the family real estate business and done very well. But instead, he's a pioneer. He kind of, when he went to Harvard, it was in the wake of the, the Facebook craze. Um, I think Zuckerberg dropped out a year or two before Josh enrolled. And he, he kind of fell in love with startups. And instead of um, following the real estate path, uh, he launched a small angel fund that slowly grew and grew. And now um, it's a group of probably about 20 millennials. Um, they look very different. Thrive office looks very different than a typical Silicon Valley office, which the stereotype is a bunch of you know, middle-aged white guys in khakis kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, Josh's team is young. They're international. They, uh, they span all religions. I think a great deal of um, his investment team are actually either immigrants or um, first-generation uh, Americans. Um, so it's the full spectrum. Um, I think the oldest guy there is you know, 36, 37. Everyone else is young. So they look different. They're scrappy. It's very refreshing to see uh, going into that office and kind of see the great work they're doing. And at the end of the day, what can America learn about the Kushner brothers, that it's possible to sit at the dinner table with uh, a member of the opposite party and not fight? The lesson of the Kushner brothers I don't know if <laughs> I'm equipped to have that, but it's very, I think, no matter what your politics, it's inspiring that you have um, two people that, you know, came from a privileged background and they still just want to make stuff happen and they work all the time. They're gritty. They they both have told me that they have a, uh, they were raised with a, you know, an immigrant mentality that, you know, if you're, you, the way you get ahead is you work when other people are resting. Um I think Josh always said that one motto was like, the ball doesn't come to you. You have to go to the ball kind of thing. So they are, um, while there's 50 other people that kind of uh, live a, could live a cushy life, they're out there, you know, grinding away, whether it's real estate or politics or, uh, or venture. At the end of the day, what I think is most remarkable to me about Josh and Jared Kushner is that they are able to still call each other best friends. These are two men sitting in very different positions. But they've been able to maintain their relationship, which to me is just it's fascinating. Yeah, I think they've been able to uh, they've been able to split family and business, so to speak, which is tough because they grew up in the family business. But Josh and Jared have a they kind of have a strong bond. And I think that Josh 
realizes that he can still support his brother and not have to agree on um, everything the administration is trying to push through. And frankly, I'm not sure if Jared agrees with everything the administration you know puts through. Um, you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, it's brother versus brother, but it's kind of the you know the Trump administration versus a Silicon Valley culture. Um, and through their jobs, um, both of them see um, themselves on different lines. But I still think they're able to you know balance the family and, and the politics. So it's not Kushner v. Kushner. It's just Kushner and Kushner. I don't even know what it is. This is after doing two of these stories. It's so complex, um, and it's not. It doesn't break down down uh, clean lines, so to speak. Well, I'm sure we'll be seeing more out of both Josh and Jared Kushner. Get ready. More headlines. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So that was Steve Bertoni talking about the Kushner's influence politically and in Silicon Valley. Joining us now is wealth reporter Chloe Servino. She knows all the details about how the Kushners got rich and how much they're worth. Chloe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. How much is the Kushner family worth? We estimate their net worth to be $1.8 billion. And like Jared Kushner's father-in-law, a lot of that money has come from real estate, correct? Yes, more than half. What real estate? Would I recognize any of it walking down the street? You know, there are a few um, pretty landmark properties in Manhattan, but the bulk of it really is in apartments um, across the country. Um, these, uh, A lot of the time, these are tenement-style apartments in Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. So, you know, they're um, older, pre-war, um, you know, the type of things that my great-grandparents who came over and lived in when they were immigrants. Interesting you mentioned immigrants. Uh, Jared and Josh's grandparents were immigrants as well, Joseph and Ray. Yes, they survived the Holocaust, um, which is, you know, uh, such an incredible feat of perseverance. And they came to America, and um, Charles's father, Joseph, um, started out as a carpenter in New Jersey and then became a builder. And that's when Charles Kushner actually got his first taste of the real estate business. Joseph Kushner um, was managing about 4,000 apartments as Charles was growing up. So then Charles is, of course, Jared and Josh's father, and he developed his real estate know-how. And then is that how Josh and Jared kind of got their business acumen? Yeah. So Charles um, got a law degree, decided that he didn't just want to be a building manager. He wanted to own properties. And so he started out buying up apartments, mostly in New Jersey at the time, and then, you know, around the country. And he started out doing that in 1985. Kushner Companies was founded in 85. Mm -hmm. Nice long history. But in 2004, there was a bit of a, a legal dust up, if you will. I guess, you know, the backstory is that Charles pled guilty to tax evasion, legal campaign contributions, and witness tampering. And that was in 2004, and he went to jail for two years. And during that time, th that's when Kushner Companies had an outside CEO. And then when Charles came out of jail, Jared Kushner took over. And I can say, too, you know, at the time of um, when Charles pled guilty, that was the peak um, for Kushner Companies owning apartments. And there were about 25,000 apartments in 2004. Um, so, you know, that is a huge amount of units that they owned. And those were all pretty much um, centered around the Northeast. 
And then by 2007, you found they started selling the apartments and had sold almost the bulk of that holding. Correct? Yeah, yeah, they needed to. And, um, you know, is that's when Jared took over. And when he took over, a lot of the proceeds from those sales ended up basically going into his first big deal, um, which was when he purchased 666 Fifth Avenue, um, which, again, is today thought to be, you know, their crown jewel. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. So 666 Fifth Avenue is in Midtown Manhattan, not too far from Trump Tower, in fact. Yes, exactly. And uh, Jared, you know, made this deal for $1.8 billion, and that was in 2007. And it was a record. um, It was a record deal at the time. Of course, awful timing because Mm -hmm. the uh, global recession happened just soon after and credit dried up around the country. And uh, that uh, forced Kushner companies to um, sell off the building's retail space. And that helped the company, you know, kind of stay on track during the recession and the post-recession years of growth, especially around New York City's booming real estate market. So that retail space that was sold off has become a, a hot tourist hub. It's always, anytime I pass it, it's many people deep on the sidewalks and popular clothing store Uniqlo. Yeah, it um Kushner Company's got about one point five billion dollars for the retail space, so it's definitely been it was definitely a good deal for them. It's a massive amount of money for one building in midtown Manhattan, but that's I guess Manhattan real estate for you. Yeah, and, and that's why it's their crown jewel, you know. Um they do though, you know, in terms of volume, they have so many apartments still in Manhattan and around the New York City area, particularly, and um, they did sell out, out. They did sell off um, a lot of apartments before the 666 Fifth Avenue deal, but um, since then they've been they've been increasing those apartments ever since again. Why do they like apartments so much, or in general, why would apartments be a good thing to invest in? Well, they're doing two things right now. Um, one is you know they're holding on to these low-maintenance apartments, tenements, you know, they don't really need a lot of luxury amenities. Um, And I think that and the rents there are helping them develop these luxury buildings like you're now seeing. Um, They've they've bought about 4 million square feet in Jersey City, for example, and those are all uh, luxury amenity buildings. So, uh, you know, one's kind of fueling the other. Interesting. The no-frill... Tenement-like buildings are almost subsidizing think the about luxury. It. Yeah, think about it. You know, those are the easiest to manage. There's not much you have to do, not much those uh, residents, myself included. I live in a tenement on the Lower East Side, and that's not much I really expect from my management company. So, uh, you know, I think that's helping them, you know, build these lovely buildings. And, you know, one of them in Jersey City, for example, is actually a Trump license deal. And, um, you know, going into that, it, they are gorgeous. They have views of Manhattan, 180 degrees, um, and everything's furnished by Restoration Hardware. They are top of the line. Now, they also own the Watchtower. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So um, when Jared came in, he really was trying to build an up and coming markets like Jersey City and also in Brooklyn, for example. Um, one of their um, most recent purchases, which has kind of drummed up the most excitement, is um, taking over the 2.3 acre um, property where the Jehovah's Witnesses headquarters has been historically. And um, they have partners on that deal, but that property costs $340 million. So they're definitely expecting that redevelopment to be significantly valuable in the future if that's just the money that they're putting in for the land and, you know, the without including the future renovations. Well, it's an iconic building, isn't it? Yes, it is, definitely. Many people think of that about that as, you know, when you're first walking, when you're first looking at Brooklyn and, um, you know, it's one of the first things that hits you and it's in a classic um, photography of, of New York, for example. So if you've never been to New York but you've seen photos of New York, you've probably seen the Watchtower. So real estate really does account for the bulk of the Kushner family wealth. They they do have some holdings in uh, Josh's company, Thrive Capital, but by and large, would you say this is a family that's made its money off of America's land and buildings? Yeah, definitely. And um, the family valuation, is, aside from the parents, includes Josh, Jared, um, and their two siblings their two sisters as well. So um, this is a family affair, and each have a stake in the family real estate company. Great. Chloe, thanks so much for breaking those numbers down. Thanks for having me. Joining us now on Skype is Zach Friedman. He's a Forbes contributor, and he's the founder and CEO of Make Lemonade. It's a personal finance resource site that you can go to for all sorts of tips on credit cards, student loans, and all your personal finance concerns. Zach, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Maggie. So you've been looking at the Trump administration's first policy on student loans, and it came out a little bit ago, but I think it's gotten drowned out by some of the splashier policies on immigrants and health care and, and what have you. So can you tell me what, what is this first policy? What did the Department of Education do? Sure. So the Department of Education issued what's called a Dear Colleague letter. And this was a letter that came out to guarantee agencies, which are the entities that collect on student loans. And the letter told the agencies that they could disregard a memorandum that was issued by the Obama administration in July 2015. So essentially, this new policy said we're going to do away with the Obama directive. And now a borrower who defaults on their student loans uh, could be charged up to 16 percent uh, fees on principal and interest uh, within the 60 days of default. Previously, they had about a 60-day uh, reprieve from doing so. And that essentially has become the first policy out of the new administration uh, as of last week. So let's just take a step back for folks who might not be totally up to speed on what it means to default. If I have defaulted on my student loan, what does that mean? I haven't made payments in 270 days or so? That's right. If you default on your student loans, you essentially have not made a payment in 270 days. It might be due to a lack of income, maybe a loss of employment. Um, and there are several serious consequences that can result from not making those student loan payments. Um, everything from uh, in, uh, you know, an adverse impact to your credit to garnishment of your wages. Um, it you know, can affect your, your ability going forward in terms of renting a, uh, an apartment or buying a car. So these aren't borrowers who are just tired of paying their student loans. They've typically fallen on hard times. If they're not paying, it's probably because they can't pay. That's right. I mean, I, I think for the most part, borrowers are responsible. They understand they have a, a debt obligation. They want to be able to fulfill it. 
uh, and these are folks who are trying their best, and uh, for whatever reason, they're not able to, to pay for those for those 270 days. So what's the thought behind the 16% fee? It sounds to me that if someone can't pay their debt and they have defaulted on that debt, charging them more money on top of that, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Sure. And there's different there's different schools of thoughts and perspectives. So, you know, the, these loans apply to not not all student loans. So we should we should be clear about that. These apply to loans that were issued prior to 2010 um, under the time period in which student loans were issued only by banks. And that changed under the Obama administration from 2010 forward, where all federal student loans are issued by the federal government. And so prior to that, they were issued by by banks and other financial services companies. So it's putting more money. The 16% fee then would go to the banks. It's not going to the government. To, to the collection agencies, correct, who are collecting on, on behalf of the banks, or, or, or correct, the agencies. It is not going to the federal government. So these are privately held companies, essentially, that are that would be collecting on these fees. And, and I, you know, I, I think... I think the administration would argue, look, this is for the federal family education loan program. Prior to 2010, these are financial services companies. They are private loans. And if a private, if a private entity is making a loan to an individual, that private entity has a right to collect on those loans if, if they weren't you know, paid back in the agreed upon time frame. I think that would be the argument from the administration. It's not government issued debt. So privately held corporations can kind of do whatever they want. So what does this mean? Who is this affecting in real time in 2017? Um, there are about 4.2 million borrowers of FFL loans who are in default. Um, so that's just to give you a, a sample size of who's there. But this is not for everyone to worry about that their student loan fees are somehow going up. These are really for folks who are just in default and prior to 2010 borrowed a loan. So if I'm listening to this and I'm a little bit worried and I, I'm just not sure, what should I do? Where should I go? Do I log into all my accounts? Have I missed a uh, snail mail that might have alerted me to my loan status? What would you recommend for someone who's a little bit worried having heard this headline? So the first thing I'd recommend is you would speak with your student loan servicer. You would contact your servicer. You would either go on the online portal, call them over the phone, and just get a written understanding of uh, which loans you have. Are they from the government? Are they private loans? And when you borrow those loans, and what type of loan categories do you have? Again, if you have a Stafford direct loan that came out in 2012, you're not going to be impacted. If you have a, um, a federal family education loan from 2006, um, you very well could be impacted by this. And therefore, I think it's just important to get an accounting of all of your student loans to understand where you fall. And then, of course, if you have defaulted on your loans, then this would apply to you. But again, if you're paying your loans and um, you know maybe you've missed a payment or two or you haven't missed any payments, this is not going to impact you at this time. What does it say to you that this is the Trump administration's first policy on student loans? The first policy that was articulated during the campaign, at least one of the major ones, uh, relates to student loan debt repayment uh, and the current repayment programs that are offered through the federal government. So currently, the way that it's structured is that um, for the repayment plans that are offered today, uh, essentially, uh, 10 percent of income of discretionary income is applied towards repayment plans for federal direct loans. And then after a period of 20 years, if you're an undergraduate uh, or 25 years with a, with a graduate degree, your loans would be completely forgiven. And so President-elect uh, Trump uh, last fall had proposed shortening that time span from the, the 20 or 25 years down to 15 years and increasing the discretionary income payment that a borrower would make uh, up to 12.5%. So slightly higher income 
uh, payments uh, each month, but then an overall shortening of the time period, um, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years. And so that was something that was, you know, people were very excited about because it would, it would give folks a chance to have their loans forgiven more quickly if they were on these repayment programs. Um, so whether that comes into play later on in the administration, we will have to see and wait, but that certainly might be a welcomed policy. The only caveat I would add to that is the future of the public service uh, loan forgiveness program. This is a program that essentially um, helps those who are serving in, in a variety of roles within public service dedicated their lives to, uh, to giving back. And for those folks, they have an opportunity to have their loans forgiven after 10 years. And the big question now is uh, anyone who is currently working towards that program, um, if, if there was this new paradigm about the 15-year forgiveness program with the folks who are on the current public, public service loan forgiveness program or hoping to be a part of it, would their loan still be forgiven after 10 years or would, they, would everything be combined to a 15-year time frame, which would mean it would extend their time period by five years. So hopefully they'll be grandfathered in, uh, but we're waiting for details to see if that comes to fruition. And to be clear, public service and teacher loan forgiveness, that applies if you are a teacher or if you are working for a nonprofit entity. So I, as a journalist, could not apply for public service loan forgiveness. But if you are a med student working, or rather a resident, working at a hospital that has nonprofit status, that might be someone who would have been interested or still would be interested in this program. Is that correct? That's right. And there are a variety of roles within federal government, state government, local government, nonprofits um, that, that would qualify for, for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, and then certainly the teacher uh, student loan forgiveness that you mentioned as well for, for teachers in, in primary and secondary education and, and, and another, uh, and other uh, educational roles as well. So basically, if someone has been in this program for a few years, they just have to wait and see as to what the end date will be. We're still waiting for that to come out. Uh, it's not necessarily the end date. It'll just there's currently a program now that will, after ten years of qualifying payments and annual certification, um, that you essentially check in with the federal government. And again, these are for your federal direct loans only. That doesn't apply for private loans. Um, essentially, the thought is that 10 years um, of service and payments would result in student loan forgiveness. Um, if the Trump administration comes out with the policy that, that was brought up during the campaign, then there may be the opportunity for to keep either the, the 10 years for student loan forgiveness or there have been some speculation. Again, it's just speculation that all student loan forgiveness could be folded in to a single 15-year paradigm. But hopefully, anyone who is currently working towards public uh, service loan forgiveness would still be grandfathered in and have that 10-year time frame. But again, that's just speculation at this point. And I'm sure we don't know the answer to this, but what about people who are in school right now and had entered school under Obama as president, knowing the parameters of his student loan forgiveness programs for public service jobs, and we're counting on entering the public sector? If I'm graduating in May, what should I do? It's a great question, and, and, and there is no good answer. There, there are a lot of considerations uh, that one makes when entering public service. Ho hopefully, first and foremost, is the ability to get back and, and, and serve your country or your community. Um, but I can certainly understand folks who are 
you know, one of the considerations about public service is the ability to forgive student loans. Uh, you know, it, there's nothing definitive, right? And so there's a current program and policy that exists, but the administration um, under the Higher Education Act and, and, and Congress has a chance to uh, amend that. And uh, one is certainly taking a risk that that program may not be there at the end of 10 years. So I think anyone who's in school now and considering a career in public service, that should be one of the factors that's weighed, um, but hopefully it's not the single most important factor when deciding to work at a career in public service. What else do people need to know about student loans? Will President Trump make student loans great again? Uh, hopefully he will. I mean, look, there, there are a lot of issues with student loans today, everything from you know, the, the amount of uh, folks who are defaulting um, to those who are in repayment. You know, it's approaching $1.4 trillion um, in student loans outstanding today across 44 million borrowers. Uh, and it's been obviously a major uh, economic epidemic that's uh, impacting um, millennials, Generation X, Generation Y, Generation Z, uh, impacting their ability to make other financial decisions like, say, for retirement, buy a home, get married, and a lot of these important financial decisions and, and personal decisions are being pushed off later in life. So I think we definitely need a holistic approach to give student do uh, student uh, debt relief, um, uh, you know, cautioning folks about the types of schools they're attending and uh, trying to measure the amount of loans that they're taking and the careers they hope to have after graduation and the corresponding incomes that come with those careers so they can have a real understanding about what they're signing on to and, and the obligations that they're uh, committing to. I think it's also important that um, student loan servicers, uh, these are the entities that help collect uh, and manage and essentially service the customer service apparatus for student loans and student loan companies, um, can really be more transparent. I think that's that's paramount. Um, there was a lawsuit that came out earlier this year from the uh, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a government agency, uh, had sued Navient, which is the largest student loan servicer in the country, uh, and essentially over a, a variety of allegations regarding uh, improper practices and collections and uh, assessment of fees. And I think this just creates a lot of confusion and, and resentment among student loan borrowers. And so I think there needs to be reform uh, in increased transparency and customer service and helping student loan borrowers understand the types of loans they're borrowing, the repayment plans that they're potentially signing on to, you know, understand their full slate of options um, so that you know, this can be a fair process and everyone gets a fair shake. I sit here with student loans outstanding, so I, I completely agree. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. This was fantastic. Thank you so much, Maggie. In the conversation you just heard, Zach and I talked a little bit about public service loan forgiveness for people who may have applied to have their loans forgiven after 10 years for having worked in a public service job. After we spoke, there was a development in this arena. In a legal filing in late March, the Education Department argued that student loan borrowers could not rely on any approval letters they've received from Fed Loan Servicing regarding their public service forgiveness because any approvals that they may have received are considered tentative. Zach has written more about this on Forbes.com, but long story short, this is even more uncertain than it was when we spoke. And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at ForbesOnTrump at PodcastOne.com. I'm John Horn. I'm the host. 
Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.